Happy New Year, everyone. We have to realize that we made it up, right? Like most things humans do, we've made it up. We made up that it's a new year. But it's useful because it helps us start over. It helps us have a ceremony where we leave things behind that we don't want to carry into the new year, which is what we do in our New Year's celebration downtown, and begin fresh. And that's really important for human beings to be able to leave what we don't want to carry forward behind, or at least try, make a reasonable try at leaving things behind. One um, thing to consider is if you were to leave your whole life behind and start fresh, which people do. I read this week about a man that they had just picked up uh, for having tinted windows. I guess that's illegal in some with some vehicles or in some areas. And they discovered that he was somebody who left a suicide note and disappeared a few years ago. So there's, an, there's a desire to start over, right? In his case, it was financial misdealings uh, that he wanted to get away with, way from with a lot of cash. Um, but that impulse to, gosh, I wish I could just leave it behind and, and begin again, is present in all of us, I think. And the statistics now, I think, are 50% of college students, or maybe I think it's more than 50%, have contemplated suicide. So if you look at that impulse to commit suicide and how common it seems to be, it's the impulse to start fresh, right? to leave it behind and start fresh. So if we look at the core, that's a really important impulse, to leave it behind and start fresh. So if you, if you could continue forward with nothing from your past life, how would it feel? Just think about that for a moment. You just stepped forward completely fresh. You'd have to be you know, being convenient, you'd have to be introduced to your partner and your children and so on, but your friends. But let's say you could take care of that in a day, being reintroduced to your life, and then you just started forward with no baggage. No baggage. You'd still be as intelligent and you'd have the skills that you had before, but your history, you know, the history that you drag around in a garbage bag all the time, if that history were gone, the, the difficult history, the history of suffering and, and pain and stress and so on, if that were gone, what would it be like? What do you think? It would be okay? Free and light. Free and light. light. Now, often people say, I feel light. I feel like I'm floating, practically, like floating through life. If I could leave that history behind. Well, that's what we're doing with meditation. That's one of the things we're doing with meditation. Is In the Mindful Eating workshop that we had this weekend, we did little mini meditations. And always the instruction that I gave was, put the past, or frequent instruction I gave was, and do give, is put the past in a box or a bag and put it behind you. Put the future in a box or a bag and put it behind you. And now, without the past and future crowding in, and smushing the present moment to where we're not in it, let the present moment expand. Those bookends are gone. The present moment can expand and become very rich and very full. I think baptism is the same. Adult baptism is the same. Being saved, being washed in the blood of the Lamb, whatever we call it, that impulse of 
gosh, I wish I could just move forward free of all the personal baggage is um, present in everyone. So how do we do that? How do we do that? How do we essentially live in the present? And that come, if out of that comes the central question, I think, of, of mindful eating and really of our whole practice, of our whole life. Why is it so difficult to stay present? So let's take the example of eating, since many of you were in the mindful eating workshop, and many of you have taken it before, even if you weren't here this weekend. Why is it so difficult to stay present while you're eating? Any discoveries this weekend from those who took the workshop or those who have done the work after taking the workshop? Why is it so difficult to stay present while you're eating? What do you think? So particularly if you were raised in a household where there was a lot of stress around food or mealtimes, and that's something we talked about in the workshop. So if, the, if, food, if eating, sitting down and eating was laced with anxiety, then you will want to escape. Right? So that's easy, pretty easy to understand. That's, that would be conditioning from the past. Eating, the situation around eating is too unpleasant. I need to escape. Any other reasons than not to stay present while eating? Thinking about what's coming next. Now, why does the mind want to do that instead of being present with what's now? What do you think? Yes. Okay. So that's that's what I wanted you to say, Dave. Dave. <laughs> Dave was answering a question in the workshop, and in his mind, in, into his mind and out of his mouth came this statement about, I'm not being productive <laughs> while I'm eating, so I have to do something else. That's fascinating, right? So if just eating is not productive, I've got to be doing some work while I eat, some kind of work, reading or writing something or checking my text messages. So that's a disease of... Western civilization, right? That my personal worth depends on what I'm producing. And eating isn't producing anything except poop. So, <laughs> oh, oh yeah, oh, good health, oh well. <laughs> so therefore, there, I shouldn't just eat. Just eat is not enough. Or I should even be ashamed about just eating. So we talked about being in a restaurant and there you are alone, no friends just eating. Something's wrong, so you've got to do something else. Get a newspaper, like old wives' tales in Portland. They have newspapers right in the front door, so you don't have to just sit and eat. You can read a newspaper in case you forgot to bring a book or, you know, your iPad or something. You can have something to read, too. So any other things you can think of about why you it's so difficult to just stay present while eating? Are you raising your hand? Yes, please. Mm. Mm. 
Yes. So instead of just eating and savoring what we're eating or experiencing what we're eating, might be something we don't like, our mind takes over and starts talking about good food, bad food, past food. Like the story I told about a friend who we, we invited me out to eat and we he ordered pasta and we were talking and he took one bite and then he said, I've had much better pasta than this. And he began talking about a restaurant he'd eaten in several years before. And I was watching this phenomenon of someone eating pasta, which I thought was quite good, but his whole mind's attention was on this old memory. So that's an example of the mind. As soon as the mind slips in, the thinking mind slips in, the talking mind slips in, then we're away. And it just, it's its habit pattern, right, to come in and evaluate what we're doing, whether we're being productive or whether this food is good enough or should we ask for the recipe or should we change the recipe, whatever it's thinking, or what the calorie count is or is this healthy or were the chickens happy who laid these eggs or, you know, then we get off into orthorexia, which we talked about, this new disease of being so terrified that the food you're eating is faulty in some way, whether it's pesticides or not local or there's a million ways now that food can be faulty that you can't eat anything and people end up really malnourished because they can't they're so afraid of food so there's another reason which I'm going to we'll we'll hold and see if we can get around to it so the the question in mindful eating really and and in life in meditation and in life is why is it so difficult to stay present in the case of eating while we eat why do we switch our attention to looking at the phone or the computer or reading or even talking as one man said um, a number of years ago in the Mindful Eating Workshop, eating is one of the most pleasurable things I do every day. Especially if you're not having sex every day, it is the most pleasurable thing you're doing every day. Why am I in such a hurry to get it over? Because that's the way in, this, in our culture we look at, a lot of people look at eating. i got to get it over so I can get on to the next thing. And research shows that we eat our favorite foods faster than we eat the foods that we don't particularly like. That's weird. That's crazy. So we do some exercises designed to help us slow down in the Mindful Eating Workshop. And it's interesting, those exercises take, but then we forget. Yesterday I caught myself, you just have to laugh at yourself. I mean, you either cry or you laugh, and laughing is better. Because crying means you take yourself too seriously. So don't take yourself so seriously because yourself doesn't exist in the first place. It's just, <laughs> it's just a conglomeration of habit patterns. Sensations, thoughts, emotions, and habit patterns. But yesterday when I, at dinner when I announced, reminded everyone, the task is one bite at a time, put down that utensil, I promptly forgot it. In less than a second, I forgot it. And then about three seconds later, I discovered that I had forgotten it. And then I just had to laugh. It's hard not to laugh out loud. So that's what happens. You know, the mind just slips off. The mind has a mind of its own, I often say. The mind has a mind of its own about what it wants to do. And then we have to rein it in gently, patiently, but bring it in. Bring it into here, now. So when we're doing exercises designed to help us slow down, we realize how impatient we are about eating in this culture. If we feel if we feel like eating is taking too much time, that's a kind of <laughs> very funny phrase. Eating is taking too much time. We, we start feeling impatient or we feel ashamed 
because people are maybe watching us because we're taking too much time. I grew up with a very slow eater, and a few people said that they were themselves very slow eaters or had partners who were slow eaters. It's often, it's interesting and amusing how a slow eater often marries a fast eater. (laughs) But we marry people that can teach us something, right? So if we can learn from the other person, and they can learn from us, that's great. So impatience enters if we feel like eating is taking too much time. So we have this reluctance in this culture to take too much time with eating and impatience with eating. But here's what's really weird. We spend a lot of time thinking about food. A little bit of time eating and hoping it will get over with, but a lot of time thinking about food. So there was a survey by a group called ShapeSmart, which is interested in selling their uh, plan for health. And they, they surveyed 5,000 people, men and women, about their attitudes towards food. And a quarter of the women said they think about food every 30 minutes. Then they asked them about sex, and the women said, just one in ten think about sex that often. So a quarter of women are thinking about food every 30 minutes. And that reminded me of a woman when I gave this mind-fleeting workshop in L.A., which is the center of the industry, you know, the movie entertainment industry, and this very beautiful woman came, young woman, sort of like a cross between Julia Robertson and Natalie Portman. Um, and she's in the industry, not of celebrity, but in the industry. And after the first day of the workshop, she suddenly just blurted out, just cried out. She said, she said, this is... This is radical. She said, this is radical. You don't realize I spend almost every waking minute thinking about food and my body, food in my body. If I don't do that anymore, who will I be? So something we're thinking about becomes who we are, right? If we're constantly thinking about something, it becomes who we are. So if we're thinking always about food or calorie counts or are we on the diet or not on the diet or is this good food or not good food or what are we going to have next to the next meal, then we're just built of that kind of thinking. And if we could imagine dropping that, like I said, imagine dropping your past, if we could imagine what she had got a glimpse of, who would she be if she wasn't continually thinking about food? There would be this empty space, right? And then fear about, well, who would I be? I've built a whole identity in the last however many years on on this obsession with eating and food. And if I let that go, who would I be? So that's one hint about why we might be afraid to be in the present moment. Because we face the emptiness the unpredictability of the present moment, the next moment. And we like um, living by plan, right? And even if the plan is causing us suffering, if the plan is I'll think about food and obsess about food all the time, or whatever we obsess about, and even though it's making me suffer, at least it's familiar, and I've built an identity around it, so that's who I am. And then there's a fear of the unknown. Who would I be if I changed? Now, in this survey, interestingly, so they found a quarter of women think about food every 30 minutes, 
but only one in ten think about sex that often. On the other hand, men think about sex much more frequently, with one in in twenty thinking about it every minute. (laughs) I think they had an app, you know, where they would... And the app would ring, and then you had to say what you were thinking about. (laughs) One in 20 thinking about it every minute, (laughs) and 36% every half hour. (laughs) That's a lot of time devoted to one subject, (laughs) or one part of your identity. (laughs) So you you see how meditation is pretty radical, right? Because meditation says, let it all go. Just follow your breath. Let it all go. Just feel the the sensations of movement and temperature and observe light and dark. Then we feel impatience arise. So is that enough? Is that enough to be present? Or do we have to be producing something or is it enough, at least part of the time, to be just present? Is that okay? Many people noticed impatience, especially when we were doing the put the spoon down exercise. I, I love that one because I, I still, having done it for a long time, and I practice it a lot, still I'll catch my hands sneaking in, <laughs> sneaking in and preparing the next bite. <laughs> so our habit patterns are so ingrained. So we have this idea of, well, we're taking too much time for eating, but we have to challenge that. We have to challenge what our mind says. How much is, is too much time? Who says that this is too much time for eating? So we always have to challenge what our mind tells us, or what our culture tells us, or what doctors and research scientists tell you. I gave you some examples during the Mindful Eating Workshop of the nonsense that was taught to me in medical school. That butter was bad and cornmeal and margarine was good. Endorsed by the AMA as heart healthy. <laughs> what, 20 years later, it turns out it's trans fat, which is worse than butter. So everything, we had to take everything, but mostly what our own minds tell us and then what other people's minds tell us too. With a grain of salt, oh, is that really true? Not in a belligerent way, not in, a, in, a, in an obstreperous, averse, averse personality. You get people who are always challenging everything. It's just living through aversion, but just questioning be curious. Hmm, I wonder if that's actually true. Especially with our own mind. So when the mind says, oh, you, you've got to eat faster, you're taking too much time to eat. You say, oh, is that really true? So how do we check that? Well, we might look at how, how much time does it take people to eat in this culture on the average. And those of you who have done mindful eating work or read the book know what that is. How many minutes should it take to eat a meal in our culture? Anybody remember? Eight, eight to ten. Yeah, eleven. Eight to eleven minutes. So cafeterias, school cafeterias, commercial cafeterias, uh, fast food restaurants, and so on. That's what they count on. Eight to eleven minutes. And if you watch people eat, that's about how much time it takes. Unless you're in a fancy schmancy restaurant, and the, and then you purposely relax, but you pay for that. Right? You pay money for that. So the fast food restaurants actually engineer their um, decor. They engineer the color, 
the lighting and the mood so you'll get out of there fast because they're interested in the turnover because the food is cheap so they got to sell it to a lot of people so you're being manipulated there too we talked a lot about how we're being manipulated and to try to understand that and go against it if we want to so when the mind tells us that's a true fact we have to ask is that really true or is that just something somebody made up or is that a condition a condition from my childhood like we have one son who is always very certain even from a young age he was always very certain he would just we'd ask a question you know discussing something and he'd pipe up with an answer we began calling him the future lawyer because he was so certain certain and even as an adult he'll just say something like with great certainty and then we you have to go did you make that up and he'll say yeah but i i'm sure it's true <laughs> so we have to ask our mind the same thing did you make that up or is that true so we can do a reality check if the mind says oh you're taking too much time to eat you can try eating taking more time to eat and see what happens so experiment is it the end of the world or is it a different experience and if so how or you can look at other cultures for comparison to see is it conditioned by our culture so in France and in Japan they don't eat or eat in 10 minutes they enjoy eating they relax while they eat it's a it's an experience so and many people have told me if you go out to eat lunch in in France for example count on 2 hours because it's it's a time to be be present to be present with your friends to talk to the waiter talk to the cook about what what they've made and where it came from sample each dish one at a time not this huge loaded plate plopped in front of you and then just scarf it down but one course at a time even in an ordinary lunch really enjoy it so why do we deny ourselves in this culture that that pleasure it's a really interesting question why do we save it for special occasions why do we make and why can't we have a special occasion whenever we eat So when David's mind says, "Oh, you're not being productive when you're just eating." We have, you have to turn to the mind that says that, and all of our minds in this culture say that. Do I need to produce something to justify eating? And one person talked about a childhood experience where they would go to a friend's house and feel that they had to help help in some way, cleaning, washing dishes, doing something to justify having a meal in that person's house. So we have to look at these very subtle aspects of the mind that infiltrate our activity because if we have to produce something to justify eating then of course we have to produce something to justify being alive do we have to earn our way and then you have to look at meditation what does meditation produce Chohoku Okumura who's a wonderful Zen teacher from Japan and now living in Indiana teaches what his teacher taught which is zazen is good for nothing meditation is good for nothing doesn't produce anything <coughs> however as hogan says 
there are many beneficial side effects. But that's not the goal. The goal is to do something natural, which is missing from our lives. An essential nutrient, as I said in the Mind Fleeting workshop. Something that's absolutely essential to our health. To our mental health and to our physical health. When our mind gets out of the way, then the body's wisdom can emerge. The body's taking care of us all the time. All the time. And if we're subtly directing negative energy towards our body, which we talked about a little bit in the Mindful Eating Workshop, the body is less likely to thrive. But when we get out of the way, the body's own wisdom can take over and the greater wisdom can manifest in our lives. So this workshop is called The Sacred Art of Eating. They didn't want to title the book Sacred Art of Eating. I don't know why. Probably because sacred is scary for people and they wanted it to have a wider market. I'm not sure. (laughs) But we have to look at the word sacred. So how do you know if something is sacred? If you have an experience, doesn't even in a church or temple or synagogue or outside, what gives it the feeling of, oh, this is sacred? Sense of age. So just tell me a little bit more about that. So touching something. Ah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So touching something ancient, experiencing something that's that has that ancient quality to it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So we could even say timeless, right? Ancient meaning extended back through ancient time, or timeless. Degree of appreciation. Uh-huh. So expand on that. Mm-hmm. 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 So if you had a higher level of appreciation for something, it would begin to take on that sacred quality. So unpack appreciation. What would that involve, a higher level of appreciation? What do you think? Mm-hmm. So respect, honor. Mm-hmm. So that has a an attentional quality of uh, directing the mind with uh, with that feeling, which is an emotional quality, maybe of reverence uh-huh, or respect. So we're we're getting at some some qualities that infuse an experience that would make it, us call it sacred. So respect, perhaps extra attention, timeless attention or timeless quality. What else would make you feel like, oh, this is I'm having a sacred experience? Hmm? Connectedness. Mm-hmm. Connectedness to what? Uh huh. So a wider connectedness then, an, an expanse, expansive connectedness. 
Could it be connectedness to yourself? Or is it? So feeling the connection from within yourself to other people, other things, a larger, a lar- your larger life. Mm-hmm. Somebody said something down here? Worth protecting. Mm-hmm. So the feeling that something is sacred, you automatically feel, oh, I should protect it. It has extra value. And I, mm-hmm. I respect it more. I, would, I treasure it more. I would like to protect it. Lineage or tradition. So that's touching on the ancient quality that you can you feel like, oh, this has come down over over time. Mm-hmm. Especially in the world which is changing so rapidly, to find something that has persisted. In the case of Buddhism, that's persisted through many cultures: India, China, Japan, now the West. We'll see if it'll persist in the West, but hopefully it will. So that it, that can keep changing according to the circumstances but retains a core a core that is timeless and doesn't is unchanging any other qualities of the sacred that you can think of that for you inspiring or energizing mm-hmm. so it brings you extra energy or extra inspiration for your life mm. beyond time mm-hmm. so that's that timeless aspect that not only does it feel timeless, but it feels almost outside of time. Mm-hmm. Hmm? Heartfelt. So there's a connection to the heart, not just to the mind. Mm-hmm. Sometimes heartfelt means more than just connection, but an opening of the heart. Mm-hmm. That the heart somehow we realize, oh, my heart was narrow and now it's open. Just like Dave was talking about, oh, I I was focused here, but now I feel connected out here. Not just connected to my friends, but connected to the whole. So all of these are qualities of, of the sacred. Based in connection, connection to our, deeper connection to ourselves, but simultaneously that connection to what is greater than our little self what is universal, what is timeless, or outside of time. And then automatically that feeling of respect or awe. Awe is another quality of sacred. Arise. So one, one Zen teacher at one Zen meeting, when we were talking about what are, what's the edge of our practice, it's a very interesting discussion among Zen teachers, what's the edge of your practice? And one... Uh, teacher from Minnesota said, the edge of my practice is, you know that feeling when the Holy Spirit is present? I want to know how to make that happen more often. So that's coming from a Zen teacher. (laughs) So it's universal. It, It isn't the property of Christianity or Judaism or Hinduism or Islam or Buddhism that sacred quality. So how do we make it happen more often? Do we want to make it happen more often? I think so. I think people who come to a place like this are interested in having it happen more often, but how do we make it happen more often? 
be open. Mm-hmm. Be open to it. So first, invite it. Right. Say, I would like to have this in my life more. And then start investigating what is it that seems to make it more likely. Right? Under what condition does it happen more often? You have to show up. Meaning? <laughs> yes. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yes. So we have to go to places or do things that make it more likely. It could be being in nature. For many people, nature is their church and their place of sacredness. It doesn't have to be a church or a temple, but purposely doing it. So there's a, like we talked about in mindful eating, it's deliberately bringing your attention to exterior and interior without criticism or judgment. judgment. That deliberate quality is what you're talking about. We have to show up. We have to bring it into our lives. Because entropy, otherwise entropy takes over, and modern, modern life takes over. So we have to elbow some space aside and say, this, this space is dedicated to the sacred. Now, a lot of the older ones of us grew up in families where we went to church every week. That was just automatic. Sunday was that sacred space, and it was preserved for that, at least Sunday morning was preserved for that. But that's now fallen out of, out of custom. So we have to even be more deliberate about it. And some people decide they didn't want to do that because they didn't appreciate. There was no sacred aspect to them of going to church. They didn't, didn't get anything out of it. So they thought, well, what the heck? I'll just do my artwork on Sundays. Or watch TV or watch cartoons or read the comics or whatever. But I notice often that people who were raised in a family where they had any religious tradition will come on Sundays here because it became a habit pattern, a habit pattern of let's set aside this time for the sacred. Even though you didn't find it in your tradition, you're still searching for it. Mm-hmm. So you come, which is very interesting. Like they've, Hogan used to work in the prisons, and a study in prison found that if people have any religious or spiritual practice, they do better in prison and afterwards than if they don't. It doesn't matter what it is. So that essential foundation that's based in that mysterious thing called the sacred and our connection to the sacred or our eventual awareness that we are the sacred, that we are the sacred living, living here and functioning here. But how to do that? So being deliberate about it, setting aside time, finding practices that work, Where it can happen, where it's more likely to happen, yes. So at a, at, at a certain point, we need willpower to go, to do, to set aside the time. As one of our women downtown said, she said, if I have to start thinking about Every Thursday, if I think, should I go to the Dharma Center or not? Should I go to the Dharma Center or not? She said, then I'm going to not go. And so I just just eliminated that question. Thursday night, unless I'm out of town, I go to the Dharma Center. Then I don't have to waste any energy thinking about should I go. So at a certain point, it's deliberate. And then at a certain point, you have to get out of the way. You have to let go. Right. So you put yourself in the situation, and then you let go. 
Yes. All right. You can't let go first. <laughs> Sometimes it happens when we're just walking around in the woods, but <laughs> it's much more likely to happen if we do a practice and put ourselves in a place with other people who are practicing. Because there's an atmospheric element to it, too. Right? People walk in this zendo and they say, wow, it's so quiet in here. Well, it's just a room. But it somehow becomes soaked in silence because of all the people who've come in here and, and practiced here, or cathedrals in Europe. You know, people who aren't religious at all love to go into cathedrals in Europe. Why is that? Because there's an atmosphere there, a sacred atmosphere that's existed for centuries, and you can feel it, and it calls to us. It calls to us, please, please let me out. Honor me in your life. This essential question of practice, which I think we have to keep looking at, why is it so difficult to stay present? If the sacred, if that connection is what we long for, why are our minds always going to past and future, to planning, to old regrets, to the old bad movies? And we do have to discipline the mind. That's part of the effort. Not in an angry way, not in a critical or judgmental way, but we have to say to the mind, look, it's not productive to watch the same bad movie 250 times and keep hoping for a different outcome. <laughs> it's not going to happen. The past is the past. Let it go. Drop, drop the garbage bag full of regrets and move on. Where we find intimacy which is really what we long for, which is another way to say the sacred is intimate. To find communion, you know, coming into union, which is what we long for, because we're born into separation, and out of that separation comes suffering, because out of that separation comes comparison, comes past, comes future, comes a life with regrets. Happiness, yes, but the regrets are the things that plague us. We long to feel that sense of union, of connection, with something much, much bigger than us, and not limited by our small time, our small time on Earth, in this human body. But at the same time, we're afraid of it. We're afraid of losing our separate identity, so we veer away from it. We come into intimacy. And then we veer away from it. You can see it in relationships. You can see it in just eating. Eating is such a great mirror for that. So why did my mind, when I gave the instruction to be present by putting down the spoon, why did my mind veer away into some thought about, okay, now what are we going to do after this? The important thing is, can I just come back? Can I detect that it happened? Can I, in in the wider screen of awareness, detect that it happened and come back? Can I show up? John Kabat-Zinn uses this phrase, show up. Can I show up for my life? Can I keep showing up for my life? Can I keep showing up so that the sacred can emerge in my life? Our human lives are very short. Very short. Could be over any time. This is one of the prime 
remembrances in Tibetan Buddhism to bring up every time you meditate. Human life is very short. My life could be over very soon. What do I want to do with my life energy? Another reason that our mind goes to the future and goes to the past, and this is really an essential reason, and we we touched on it a little bit in the mindful eating workshop. So what what quality does a fantasy have that the present doesn't have? Feels good because you can control it. Remember how the word control came up a few times during the mindful eating workshop? And I said, okay, what do you think you can control? Can you control President Obama? Can you control Congress? Can you control the war in Afghanistan? Can you control Al-Qaeda? Al-Qaeda. Can you control the Kurds in the southern part of Turkey? Can you control your partner. Not a good recipe for a good relationship, if that's your agenda, right? Can you control your kids? Can you control your mind? (laughs) Well, we can tame it. We can train it, but we can't control it completely, right? So we have to also see how strong our desire is for control and admit that there's very little we have control over So then can we release into the flow? And when we release into the flow, lo and behold, there's the sacred, because the sacred is flowing. So there are many phrases, let go and let God, right? One moment at a time, that reflect, put down the burden of the past and the future and enter the present moment, and that's where the sacred is to be found. Our human lives are very short. We have a choice to be content skating along the surface of life, being impatient to get on to the next thing and then the next thing and then the next thing until death arrives sooner because we've been rushing. Or we can take some time, some time away from endless planning and endless regrets and rest in the present moment and connect with what we call sacred. This is a hospice nurse. She's been a hospice nurse for for a long time, doing palliative care. And she says, these are the five regrets, five top regrets of people on their deathbed. One, I wish I'd had the courage to live a life true to myself, not the life others expected of me. So you can hear some echoes from some of the things we talked about in the mindful eating workshop, all those habit patterns, expectations from our parents, expectations from society, what our body should look like, etc. I wish I'd had the courage to live a life true to myself, not the life others expected of me. She says, this is the most common regret of all. Most people have not honored even half of their dreams and had to die knowing that it was due to choices they had made or not made. It's very important to try and honor at least some of your dreams along the way. When you lose your health, it's too late. Health brings a freedom very few realize until they no longer have it. 
So assessing in the new year, as we will with our, the vows retreat, or as we do every new year, assessing, here's my life energy for myself. Maybe I'll live 10, 20 more years. I don't know. <coughs> Unlikely to live more than about 20 more years in good health. So what do I want to do with that time, with that energy? Number two, regret. I wish I didn't work so hard. This came from every male patient I nursed. They missed their children's youth and their partner's companionship. All of the men I nursed deeply regretted spending so much of their lives on the treadmill of a work existence. By simplifying your lifestyle and making conscious choices along the way, it's possible not to need the income you think you do. So that idea that we have to be productive all the time. Three, I wish I'd had the courage to express my feelings. So one of the ways that we feel intimate, and it was expressed by people in the workshop, we feel intimate when we express our feelings. That's when we really connect. Then we see the humanity in the other person. So if we, go, if we do cocktail party relationships, where we talk about the weather and sports, scores, There's that feeling of regret, missing something. I'm missing that deep connection. So to go in our relationships for connection. So the next regret is I wish I'd stayed in touch with my friends. Often they would not truly realize the full benefits of old friends until their dying weeks, and it was not always possible to track them down. She says, usually, so people want to get things in order for the benefit of those they love as they realize that their life is slipping away. Usually, though, they're too ill and weary to ever manage this task. It all comes down to love and relationships in the end. That is all that remains in the final weeks, and you cannot do anything. All that remains in the final weeks is love and relationships. And five, I wish I had let myself be happier. This is a surprisingly common one, she says. Many did not realize until the end that happiness is a choice. Happiness is a choice. The research shows that clearly. So happiness in eating. Happiness in our eating. is one example of a place where we can, take a, we can make a choice. And that choice can spread to those around us if we're content and happy in our eating, in our relationship with food. So continue to explore this question. Why is it so difficult to be present? Not with criticism, not with judgment, by coming back to the present and seeing what is going on. Challenge yourself to show up for your life. Challenge yourself to show up even just through eating, even a few times a week to be present with eating, to be present with the breath, to be present while lying down in bed, feeling the bed, feeling the pillow, feeling the body relax. Challenge yourself to be present. Be curious about what this is, to live a human life separated and also connected to the great mystery Take a risk. 